your phone or other electronic device, please find Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. I believe we have some Bibles in the back if you'd like one and don't have one. A couple other gifts we have for you. One is called Easter Uncut. What really happened and why it really matters. If you're here thinking, I'd like to understand more about Easter, more about Jesus Christ, more about this resurrection thing. Here's a gift for you. You have this one back there and another one back there as well that we would love to put in your hands. Or if you have friends who would be interested, take one and give it to them, please. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah wrote about 700 B.C., so about seven centuries before Jesus lived. He writes here of one called the servant, words distinctly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Today we finish this section we've been studying about that servant. I will begin reading in verse 10. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pause and ask for God's help. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us now to marvel at these words written so long before you came, our Lord, and yet so clearly fulfilled in your life in your death, and in your resurrection. Help us to understand, believe, and live in the good of what we find here. Would you meet us now, we ask you, in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you like changed about you? If you could pick something about you to change, what might it be? Maybe something you don't prefer a habit, perhaps. I don't know. If you could change something about you, what would you want to change? The problem you might already feel when you think about that question is, it's often very difficult or even impossible for us to change us. I did some in-depth research on this issue I googled how to change my life. The top answers from my Google search for how to change your life are as follows. Number one, travel the world. 
change your job, sell your house, do volunteer work, change your routine, do something that scares you, or write your autobiography. Maybe good advice, I'm not sure. Each of those, in some way, may change your circumstances, but notice, they can't change you. Yeah, I, I wish that traveling would fundamentally alter who I am. I would fly everywhere all the time. Merely get on an airplane would change me. I wish a new house, a new routine, volunteering my time would change tab. I would write my autobiography, only my wife would read it, but I would write my autobiography if that would fundamentally change me. But none of those can really change you or me, but Easter can. Easter can change us in the ways that nothing and no one else can change us. I want to see that with you in these few verses. I want to see with you three Easter realities in this passage, three resurrection realities that can change me and you like nothing else can. First, the servant's vindication. First, resurrection reality, the servant's vindication. Look again at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, the servant. He has put him, the servant, to grief. Why? The verse continues. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. An offering for guilt. That's language taken from the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the Bible's slaughterhouse. If you've read it, it prescribes sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice of these perfect, unblemished animals. You might be wondering, why the slaughterhouse? Well, those sacrifices were pictures of promises. Pictures of promises. A, a, a wedding ring is like that. A picture of a promise. This ring is a picture of a promise I made to my dear wife. Those sacrifices were pictures of promises that God made. A promise that he must punish sin. That sin requires the death penalty. And a promise that sin could be paid for by a substitute. A, a perfect substitute. That's what happened when the only perfect human, the God-man, Jesus Christ, hung from that cross 2,000 years ago, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was doing, verse 10, making an offering for guilt. Receiving the just judgment of a holy God against sin. But if the story ended there with a bloody sacrifice and Jesus' body in a tomb, then his critics were right. He was just a deluded madman, and we are still in our sins. But that's where the vindication comes in. Verse 10 again. 
when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And notice, he shall prolong his days. Do you see that? Prolong his days is used in various ways in a number of times in the Bible, meaning prolong earthly life. But this is about one who died, who made a guilt offering in his sacrifice. How, how is his earthly life prolonged if he's already dead? Well, that's Easter implied in this verse. That, that's the empty tomb. That's the conquered grave. That's the fact that Jesus is alive implied in verse 10. And so verse 10 ends, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you see the contrast in this verse? It begins with God's will to crush him. It ends with God's will prospering in his hand. That's the vindication. The vindication of Jesus' resurrection. As theologian Herman Bavink once said, the resurrection of Jesus is the amen of the Father, placed upon the it is finished of the Son. The resurrection of Jesus is the amen of the Father upon the it is finished of the Son. Jesus proclaims it is finished from the cross, guilt offering made in the resurrection. The Father says, amen, offering sufficient, debt paid in full which means there are beneficiaries of his vindication. Look at verse 10 one more time. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Jesus never married, never had natural children, but here he has offspring. He has children. He has spiritual progeny. That's our change. Earlier in this passage in verse 6, we were described in very, well, unflattering terms as wandering sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray, it says, and that's a nice way to put it. The Bible also calls us haters of God in Romans chapter 1, enemies of God in Romans chapter 5, strangers from God in Ephesians 2. That's who we are, naturally speaking. That's who I was. Wandering far from God like that. Friend, that's who you were. Wandering far from God or or wandering from him right now. But the vindicated one changes us. From wandering sheep to offspring, to, to his beloved child. It's a fundamental change in, in status, you might say, in relationship with God. Now his offspring, now his child. My, my father lives up in Orange County. But I have my dad's house key on my key ring. I can show up anytime and just let myself in. I have that privilege as his offspring. I have that status, you might say, that relationship as his child based on love, an unchanging relationship 
rooted in his love. For these offspring, for Christ's offspring, you might say you have God's house key. Access to God, an unchanging relationship with God, an unbreakable relationship with God, rooted in his love. That's a pretty nice change, wouldn't you say? That's the change Easter brings. I read how in parts of India, some girls were named Nakushi, which means unwanted. Nakushi is a name parents gave to newborn girls when they were hoping for a boy. These precious girls were labeled from birth with parental disappointment. Every time their parents called their name, they heard rejection, disappointment. Nakushi, come here. Unwanted, come here. Child I didn't want, come here. Finally, in 2011, the Indian government permitted a name change in more than 200 women Change their name to be Nakushi, no more. That's the change we're talking about. Some of you, I imagine, came in today thinking your name is Nakushi, unwanted. Because of maybe your own wandering from God, you think your name must always be rejected. Disappointment. God could not love me. I'm unwanted. A disappointment in his eyes. Listen, the vindicated Christ is able to change your name to my offspring. My beloved child. Would you see how great is his love in verse 10? If you are feeling unwanted, rejected, Reflect on verse 10 that you are now his offspring. But what has made such a change possible? Well, that's resurrection reality number two. The servant's verdict. Secondly, the servant's verdict. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he, the servant, shall see, experience, and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Did you see the verdict? The righteous one, this servant, has knowledge. He knows what it takes to make wandering sheep into beloved children. So he accounts them as righteous in verse 11. The righteous one extends to them his righteousness. I cause my people to be accounted before God as righteous with my righteousness. That's his verdict. What would you say are the three hardest words for you to say to someone else. I love you. I am sorry. For me, it's 
you are right. <laughs> because I am proud, I like to be right. I have a strong preference for being right. I appreciate the times when I am right. And so when I find that I think I'm right, but actually I was wrong and my dear wife is right, I have to go to her and say those three words, my dear, you are right. This verdict is God the Son saying those three words to you. You are right before God. No longer wrong in the least in your standing before God. Nothing wrong about you as you stand before God. You are 100% right before a holy God. Perfectly right standing in the servant's righteousness. Another sweet change we could never make for ourselves. It means forgiveness of your sins, but, oh friends, much more. Your legal standing before God fundamentally changed. The basis upon which you relate to God and God relates to you now permanently altered. The New Testament calls it being justified. We just sang about that. Being justified through faith alone. Think about, think about how meaningful this change is. I wish we could spend weeks considering, but, but consider one way. Because we stray, because we wander, we have, I think all of us, an experience at times of shame. Author Brene Brown calls shame the never good enough emotion. I think that's a good description. The never good enough emotion. If we're honest, I think all of us experience that. If you're honest with yourself, you can relate to the never good enough emotion in some form or fashion. Maybe, maybe other people said to you things like you're unattractive or uncool or too big or too small or just treated you as lesser than. And so you hear those voices and you feel that never good enough emotion. Or I think for many Christians, it's the shame we can put on ourselves. Brown describes a company where when they make a good decision, they put a marble into a jar. And when they make a bad decision, they take a marble out of the jar. And so they're constantly measuring company performance by how many marbles are in the jar. Is that how you seek to relate to God? Is that how you think of God relating to you? By by your constant performance. Marble in, marble out, marble in, marble out. So your goal in life is just to put more marbles in the jar. Try to do more good than bad because you think that will take away your shame. Live by the sense of performance because you feel this never good enough emotion. You need to hear this verdict. Consider this verdict. Rejoice in this verdict. Think about, again, what... Herman Bavink said, the resurrection is the Father's amen to Jesus' words, it is finished. In our Bibles, that, that's one word in the original language. It is finished is one word in the original language. It's actually in 
what's called the, the perfect tense. You, you don't need to know that. But that just means it's a past event that echoes on in effect. Something in the past with ongoing consequences. It's like saying, it is painted. If I said to you, my house is painted, then you would know, I finished painting my house, and you would assume the paint remains on the wall. It is still painted. It is finished is like that. The sense is, it is still finished. The verdict remains. You've not altered it. You've not changed it. You've not taken marbles out of the jar. The father then adds his amen in the resurrection. The performance jar is smashed. Jesus filled up that jar with his perfect obedience. It's now all yours in him. What a great change. Are you feeling that never good enough emotion this morning? Did you maybe arrive here more aware of your failure than his verdict of righteousness? Friend, look to verse 11 this Easter. Think on, meditate on verse 11 until you see your standing before God in this verdict. Your standing fundamentally changed. The righteous one accounted you righteous. And all this, all this connected to a third resurrection reality. The servant's victory. Let's see thirdly, the servant's victory. Now verse 12, friends. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he, the servant, shall divide the spoil, the spoil with the strong. Alec Matir says this might also be translated, I will allocate to him the many, and the strong he will allocate as spoil. Either way, the image is of military triumph. The, the spoil, the plunder of a victory. In, in ancient warfare, a victorious army would plunder its defeated foe. They would take the spoils of victory. Maybe you would take the shields and swords of the opponent. They're now yours. They're valuables, they're silver and gold. Now yours, they're lands, now yours. That's the spoils of victory. Here, the servant has his own spoils of victory, doesn't he? The spoils he gives to his people or his people given to him as the spoils. Either way, the servant is victorious and his people are swept up into that victory. Notice how. because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered, was numbered with transgressors. Jesus quotes those words in Luke chapter 22 to say this scripture must be fulfilled in me, numbered with us, the transgressors, numbered with the guilty, though he had done nothing wrong, Yet, as verse 12 continues, yet he bore the sin of many and, notice, makes intercession for the transgressors or was 
interposed, you might say, interposed for the transgressors. Here's how the victory is ours. The risen Jesus was interposed for us. The victorious Jesus interposed for us. We sing a hymn about this. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. It means Jesus is your go-between, your mediator, not a barrier to God, your bridge to God. The believer enters into his victory like that. Jesus interposed his precious blood. The story is told of a prairie fire. If you imagine great prairie. The fire was quickly spreading. Father and son were in the prairie. They could not outrun this fire. And so the father takes out some matches and burns an area around he and his son. And the son asks why. And the father said, because the fire cannot burn where it's already been. The victory of Jesus is interposed for you like that. Your sins already judged. Your guilt already paid for. The wrath you and I have deserved and earned, already received, and it will never again burn in that place, in Christ. Do you see what this changes? Do you see? It changes your future. Judgment will not be your future. Wrath cannot be your destination. Hell cannot be your destiny. Death, no longer the doorway to judgment, but the doorway to life. Another change we desperately need. As many of you know, my father-in-law died in our home 10 days ago, and watching him die caused me to reflect a lot on my own coming death. It was a sobering reminder. That same experience is inevitable for me and for you. We need our futures changed in what comes after death. Just this past Monday, in fact, I was informed that a 22-year-old son of a friend of mine was killed in a motorcycle accident the previous day. Just finished college, instantly killed last Sunday. I immediately called my friend Larry, who now lives across the country. He picked up, and we just cried together. We wept. And then, through tears, we both said of his son Michael, we will see him again in heaven. Why? Because the prairie fire of wrath cannot touch him or us in Christ. Christ has already brought us into victory. He has interposed his precious 
blood. It changes your future, friends. But we need to see one more thing here. And that's the repetition of the many. Three times in these three verses and other times in the entire passage. The many. Many to be accounted righteous. I will divide him a portion with the many. Yet he bore the sin of many. The many, the many are those who experience these changes. So you should ask, how do I join the many? Well, Alistair Begg has a great way of putting this. Tends to go viral around this time. And I wanted to borrow his analogy. He says, if you were to die tonight and asked, why should you be let into heaven? If you begin to answer in the first person, we've already gone off track. Because I, because I did this, because I did that. He says, the only answer appropriate is in the third person, because he, because he is victorious. He illustrates with the thief on the cross, crucified next to Jesus. The guy turns to Christ and says, remember me, Jesus, when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus says, hanging between these two thieves, today you'll be with me in paradise. Alistair Begg asks, what was that thief's entrance into heaven like? He imagines an angel greeting the guy who shows up and the angel is confused and he says, what are you doing here? The guy says, I, I don't know. The angel's kind of flabbergasted. He says, I've got to get my supervisor. He goes and gets the supervisor, angel. The guy comes over and says, so it says here you've never been baptized. You never once attended a Bible study. Okay. Do you understand the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy said, never heard of it. All right, let's talk about the doctrine of Scripture. The guy just stares blankly at him. The angel, supervisor angel says, what right do you have to enter into heaven? The guy says, all I know is the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Well, that's how you join the many. Nothing in the first person, not what I did, what I accomplished. You enter the many, you join the many when your answer's in the third person. Because he, because he was victorious, because he was vindicated, because he gave me that verdict through faith alone. That's how you join the many. It's banking your soul on Jesus Christ for how he alone can change you. Coming to Jesus and saying, I, I need you to make me your child. I can't do that. I can't make myself a child of God. I need you, Jesus, to do that. I need you to count me as righteous. I'm guilty. I need you to give that verdict. I need you, Jesus, to change my future. I can't change my future. You can change my future. You turn to him and you bank on him alone. And you join the many. Or maybe you're here and you want to check this out further. We have a context for you called, called Life Explored. It's talked about in your bulletin. And it's a context where you can come and just ask any question, raise any objection. That's fine. 
and talk about these things and explore them further. We'd love to have your interest. Let us know if you desire to join us there. But you can turn to him even now in helplessness and cry out to him, believing. And if you have believed, well, the response is similar. Hope alone, hope alone in Jesus for these changes. There's a saying in Papua New Guinea, knowledge is only rumor until it lives in the bones. Knowledge is only rumor until it lives in your bones. Here's a, here's a takeaway. Pray that these glorious realities would live in your bones this Easter. His vindication, his verdict, his victory living in your bones, not abstract to you, not just in the head, but also in the heart. That these changes would live in your bones and mind, made his offspring, his beloved child, accounted by him as righteous, your, your future secured in his victory. Friends, the response is, live in the third person. Because he, because he, because he alone can change me in all the ways I could never change myself. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing. And maybe you'd like to respond to Christ that way, even now, you might Consider closing your eyes for the purpose of concentration. And pray to him, come to him in the third person, like I said, because he did this. Because he died and is risen, you see your need, and you humble yourself, and you cry out to him for the changes only he can bring. It's acknowledging your helplessness, acknowledging your need, surrendering to this vindicated, risen Christ, and receiving with simply the open hands of a beggar receiving the changes he brings. For others, you know and have experienced these changes. Come to him even now as well. Praying this knowledge would live in your bones. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for this glorious good news. Thank you for these amazing changes. Thank you that you are the risen, vindicated one who so renders a gracious verdict and sweeps us up into your victory. Help us now to live in the good of these realities, we ask you. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Friends, would you stand with me? We're going to close with a song.